0: Well, Merry Christmas to everyone! It's good to see you. See some guests here today. We're very thankful to have you here on this uh, fourth day of Advent to celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, automatically, you're probably looking at my sermon title and thinking, um, "Is is it actually Christmas time?" Um, and I promise you that uh, every message that I can preach from this pulpit will be about Jesus, and it will be a, Christ- a Christmas message. Um, as Adam taught us last week, joy to the world can be sung uh, throughout the year, not just as a Christmas song. Um, I don't know if you've lived in Bartlett very long or in the, in the neighboring area, but uh, I have one, of the, one rule that I have as a Bartlett citizen is I never go to Kroger at 12 o'clock on a Saturday. Anybody know why? Because at 12 o'clock on a Saturday at Kroger right up the street, a siren will go off. That will pierce your eardrum and literally cause a temporary deafness. Um, it is painful. I know about it because I live so close to this Kroger that I hear it go off every week. And for us, we think of that siren as a tornado siren, right? That's what we, that's what we would call it. But actually, the, the, the true term for that siren is a civil defense siren. That's what they call them. And the reason why is because they are for civic defense Matter of fact, there are seven different uh, ways in which that siren would erupt with that loud noise. Obviously, for weather emergencies, uh, for geological disasters, for industrial disasters, for a radiological disaster, which we don't have any nuclear plants around here, I don't think, Uh, medical emergencies, like a fast-moving infectious disease, and lastly, wartime or acts of terrorism. The reason I tell you that this morning is because, thank the Lord, that siren has never had to blare because of wartime or terrorism in our city, in our country, or in our nation. It it did, or it should have, um, during Pearl Harbor uh, in Hawaii, but they didn't have warning systems like that um, installed at that time. Matter of fact, they installed those warning systems after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and believe it or not, in 2017 in Hawaii, they reinstated and installed those warning systems in the, the, the uh, state of Hawaii for any imminent threat against North Korea uh, that they feared on the, the, the base and the, and the islands there in Hawaii. The, po- the point and the purpose is, is to think about those sirens as warning. They are to grab our attention. And as a Bartlett resident, you hear that The other night, we heard those sirens go off, and we immediately moved to action. And I want you to understand today that the Word of God is a warning system for all of humanity. That the Word of God has been delivered to us, and it gives us two things. It gives us hope as a a means of, uh, of expressing this great hope of rescue and salvation, But tied with that salvation is a warning of God's judgment and the great uh, judgment upon sin. And, And bound up in all that is this warning system to us as his people, as God's people, that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Matter of fact, the very message of Jesus, the very message of Jesus is that Jesus has to come into the world because we are at spiritual war. We are at spiritual war with sin and the ramifications of sin, and the leader and the, the, the infiltrator of sin, which would be Satan, the one that, that is leading the way in temptation to sin and 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 so on and so forth. And so this Christmas message to you today, coming from our study in Nehemiah, is simply this. Jesus came into this world to be the victor of the spiritual battle that we fight every day. That's why we're here to celebrate. But we cannot be paralyzed and we cannot be unconscious to the fact that we are at war and we need to always be on the ready and on alert. We at times fall um, somewhat deaf to those sirens Forgetting that this week during Christmas time, your family and my family will be engaged in spiritual warfare. That Satan in these very moments of thinking about Jesus will want us to be distracted and deferred from thinking about Jesus. That we might instead have on our minds the unforgiveness of relatives Or the difficulty of a financial situation that has made our Christmas present uh, storage facility under our tree a little bit smaller this year. That may cause us to worry about our jobs and and the, the situations in our homes. All these things mounting up, distracting us from what we're here to do and to think about. And that is the Lord Jesus. The salvation that he brings. The victory that we have in him. Let me read for you Ephesians chapter 6 to remind us. The writer Paul tells the, the, the church in Ephesus, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full or whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so we as a a church today want to be reminded from God's word that just like God's people in the day of Nehemiah, we are at war. Let us stand ready and be on alert. And the best way that we can be on alert is understand in the ways in which the enemy attacks us, and the ways in which the enemy uh, fights against God, so that we might be ready for battle. Charles Spurgeon. The great preacher, the prince of preachers, says this, When we think that we have no occasion for our sword, we begin to unbuckle it from our side, we strip off our armor piece by piece, and then it is that we become the most exposed to the attack of our enemies. Now we all know that in Ephesians chapter 6, God is the source of our protection. God is the one who provides the armor by which we might fight the battle. And we put on that armor, and we wear that armor in alertness to the battle before us. But we also must be aware that we could put on those, those pieces of armor, maybe piece by piece, uh, individually, not as a whole, because we are distracted in such a way by the cares and the, uh, the, the love of the world. Jesus warns his disciples in Luke chapter 21, this very thing, and talking about the, uh, the end of time and the, the return of the Son of Man. And he says, Watch yourself, lest your heart be weighed down with dispensation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So we've been studying through Nehemiah, and we come to uh, this, this uh, passage in Nehemiah chapter 4, what is, which is great opposition against the people of God by the neighboring nations. And so these, this study of, of Nehemiah chapter 4 and a little bit of chapter 6 today is going to help us understand the ways in which the enemies might attack us so that we might be alert. Nehemiah was leading his people to do faithful things to stand up against uh, the uh, oppression and the attack against the enemy in order that they might fulfill the purpose of God. And what you're going to see in this passage this morning is that it takes great care for these people to be alert and to be ready as the enemy attacks. It starts with knowing the enemy. In our passage this morning, we're introduced, uh, Brother Ben read a, a couple names to us this morning, and, and, and those names uh, started with uh, Sambalat, that Sambalat was a Horonite, In chapter two, verse 10. So hold your place here. Flip over a couple pages to chapter two of Nehemiah and look in uh, chapter two, verse 19. Chapter two, verse 19. This is before the building begins. They are being engaged by these, uh, oppre- or these opponents and enemies. And it says in verse 19 But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem of Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then, of course, with great courage, Nehemiah replies to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we are his servants that will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Well, last week we looked at the building process. We saw the community at work. We saw the faithfulness of God's people coming together and working. But guess what? As God's people, as the church in today's world, as they work together to do the work of the Lord, guess what happens? Satan will not hold back. He will continue to attack He will continue to disrupt. And so what do we see in chapter 4 and all the way through 6? We see a struggle among the people of God to accomplish the work of God. First from an attack by the enemy of God. And that's what we see in chapter 4. Look in verse 1. Here we are again. Now when Sambalet heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. So we have Sanballat who is, as one commentator calls him, the chief political opponent of Nehemiah. He is what we would consider the governor of the neighboring area of Samaria from the area of Beth Horon, which is why he's called a Horonite. And he is literally standing opposed as this political adversary of the Jews regaining their prominence regaining the glory of Jerusalem by having these walls rebuilt. He wants to see the city destroyed. Another character is Tobiah the Ammonite. Interestingly, Tobiah actually means Yahweh is good in Hebrew. That his name reflects the fact that the Ammonites were descendants of the Jewish people. But ultimately, through the Old Testament, you began to see that the Ammonites became enemies of Israel and Judah. And now, in this day of Nehemiah, the Ammonites, again, are, being, uh, are standing and opposing the rebuilding of the wall. And finally, uh, looking, as I read in, in chapter 2, verse 19, another Geshem the Arab. Therefore, knowing that the Arabians were also uh, a part of this opposition as well as we read the Ashdodites and other nations as well. And what we want to see from this is simply the fact that uh, as the work of God is, is, is being accomplished, the enemies of God are rising up in multitudes to oppose this work. And listen, let me just encourage you as a believer in Jesus Christ that when you are doing the work of the kingdom, when you are sharing the gospel and you are uh, trying to, to, to aid in the expansion of the church, you're going to see that opposition and let that opposition, as difficult as it might be, encourage you. Let that opposition be the thing to remind you that you are doing what God wants you to do because Satan is attacking you. Satan has no interest in people that are paralyzed and, and, and um, ineffective in gospel ministry. Yes, he wants to, to attack the church, especially churches that are being faithful to the gospel ministry. And so these raging, raging nations remind us that God's people are always going to be in conflict with a a dead and blind and lost world led by Satan himself. And the church must remain vigilant in our awareness that Satan wants nothing more than to see the efforts of the gospel proclamation and the glorification of Christ and the multiplication of the church be thwarted until his end. So let's learn a couple ways this, morning, this afternoon how Satan might attack us, that how, how the way of the enemy might be upon us so that we can fight against that and instead be and focus on the ways of the faithful. So you're going to see the ways of the enemy this afternoon and you're going to see the ways of the faithful. The first, the ways of the enemy oftentimes is mocking and discouragement. Both in chapter 2, verse 19, and in chapter 4, 1 through 3, you literally see the jeering or the mocking from Nehemiah's enemies play out. They're making fun of the Jewish people. Saying, oh, well, uh, what are these feeble or weak Jews doing? Will they really restore the building? Will they sacrifice in the temple? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish, the burned ones at that? Tobiah says that if a fox goes upon the wall, it will break down. Just discrediting and discouraging the very work that they are putting forth. We know that Satan wants to discourage us with false words, hurtful words. And in that discouragement that we face in our day and time, the reason that we oftentimes allow that to impact us is because we are forgetting God's power and His plan and we're not focusing on His strength. If you've ever lived with a discouraging person, they oftentimes suck the life out of us because everything that is being said is on a negative level. Discouraging words, for instance, in a marriage, are never about God's power to do unimaginable things. It's always about the things that we are not accomplishing in our own strength. And oftentimes, discouragement can shape our identity about ourselves so that we get down on ourselves in those discouraging words. And we lose sight of reality. Because in discouragement, we're being told that we might be worthless or useless or ugly or ineffective. But, but in the reality of the gospel, and our theological foundation, the truth is, is that what we ever, whatever we accomplish in this world, we accomplish in God's strength and His power. So it doesn't matter who we are, it's who God is. So when we begin to believe discouraging words, we will lose heart. When we begin to counteract discouragement and instead trust in the character of God, believing our identity is found in Him, we will remain vigilant and be encouraged. Remember that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was mocked and discouraged. This is one of the ways that we are told, prophesied, it was prophesied about the Lord as He would come in Isaiah 53, that He would be despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one whom the men hid their faces when he was despised and we esteemed him not you can think of examples throughout the life of christ where he was ridiculed for being from nazareth that even his own family thought that he was at one point insane you can remember the roman soldiers forcing the thorn of crown the crown of thorns on his head making fun of Him and mocking a kingship that they did not believe in, but yet in reality was true. The Lord Jesus endured the greatest mocking and the greatest discouragement we could ever imagine. And because of that, he, knowing of of what He accomplished, knowing that He went to the cross, that He was faithful to endure those things, so that He would be victorious... And therefore help us in our moments of discouragement so that if we're being mocked, if we're being ridiculed, we can not only look to what Jesus endured, but what he overcame and find hope. Listen, let's not pretend that our children in in the school system and on teams in this culture being bullied is something new. We can find great pleasure at times in picking and prodding at people. But then there's a a, a a viciousness about it from some. Tearing down other people to make themselves feel better. Church, let me encourage you that discouragement, if you are a discouraging, critical, mocking person, you are doing the work of Satan and not the Lord. That these are the strategies and activities of the enemies of God but those who belong to God who are empowered by the Holy Spirit don't speak words of discouragement they speak words of love and admonition they bear each other's burdens they don't become burdens for others So let this Christmas season and the suffering of Christ remind us to forego and repent of our critical and discouraging spirits. Knowing that instead that Christ has saved us and called us to be people who live by hope. Therefore the way of the faithful is to trust God's power and to be people who proclaim hope. I love the leadership of Nehemiah in chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. In verse 10, he stands in front of the people after praying. And notice what's happening to the people in verse 10. It says, In Judah, it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble, they say. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will know, they will not know, excuse me, or see till we come upon them and kill them and stop the work. And then Jews who live nearby came all from all directions and, and said to us ten times, you must return to us. What's happening here? Literally the discouragement of the enemies of God is so ingrained now in the people that they are so discouraged that they want to quit. They're believing these lies. They're in a comatose state of discouragement. And I love the the the, the leadership from Nehemiah here, standing firm. And he, 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 he separates them. He says, I put them in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and in open places. I, I stationed people by their clans with swords and spears and bows. And I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles, to the officials, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Nehemiah says, trust God's power. Remember the Lord's power over your enemies. Don't be discouraged. Don't give into discouragement and mocking and bullying. Trust who God has made you to be and be faithful to what he has called you to do. You and I have no reason to believe the discouragements of others. When we know who God has created us to be by his transforming grace. God has saved you. You are the lowest, most violent, most uh, um, angry and, 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 and villainous enemy of God. God. You didn't feel that way. You didn't understand yourself to be that way. The Bible describes you that way. You were a slave to unrighteousness. You are a rebel at heart. And God reaches down and He saves you. And he's, He calls you His sons and daughters. And here we are, at times, falling into the trap of believing the complete opposite of what God has called us and what He has labeled us. Don't believe that trash. But secondly, because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, because of the message of hope that we sing about at this Christmas time, this message of hope that we, that we believe and we read about and we study in, our, in God's Word, that same message of hope has to permeate our attitude. So that we're not walking around begrudging and curmudgeons of, of despair and sadness. If Jesus Christ has saved you, church, be happy about it. Be full of joy. You have a great message of hope to share with the world. And yes, there are days that you might suffer depression and and despair. This is where the church gathers around and says, Brother or sister, trust in Jesus, rest in his power, be joyful. Even in your despair. Preach a message of hope. This is what the follower of Jesus does. He emanates hopefulness and joy. And the greatest opportunity that we have is when people see us suffer and still talk about joy in that reality. It has the most amazing effect on people. How can you be so calm right now? That's what I've heard over and over again. How can you be praising the Lord as Job did in the Old Testament? Because God has changed us. He has so made us in such a way that we are trusting God's power and giving hope to other people, knowing that the God who molded the sun, who poured the ocean into place, who creates the physiologies of our bodies, can do powerfully unimaginable things. Therefore, let's trust Him in that power. Another way of the enemy was hatred and violence. In chapter 4 verse 1 and in verse 7, we see that Sam most particularly, but the enemies in general, were, were angry. They were greatly enraged as they mocked the Jews. It literally means that they were hot and irritable. But as we continue to read in verse 7, we see that their anger at the Jews was going to go further. So that in verse 8, we're told that their anger now leads to a plot together to come and fight against Jerusalem. Here they are going from being angry at the Jews, now to plotting against the Jews to do great harm. Now, I've included chapter 6 here, not because I'm trying to cover too much, but because literally this type of oppression and and, and conflict continues in chapter 6. Let me read verses 1 through 4. Now, when Sambaleth and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there is no breach left in it, Although up to the time that I had not set the doors and the gates, Sambalet and, Ges- and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Haciferium in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why would I uh, stop the work while I leave it and come down to you? And they're persistent in this way, but thankfully Nehemiah... Sees the writing of the wall that these people who are trying, who are hating the Jews, want to be violent against the Jews, and now they are literally plotting to kill Nehemiah and do him great harm. This is the, again, the actions of our enemy, that they want to hate us. And in their hatred, that hatred leads to violence, that violence sometimes leads to murder. And this is the way of, of, of Satan, our enemy. He wants to see the death of the saints. We, we've seen throughout all of church history the martyrdom, the martyrdom of, of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who have stood their ground to believe in Jesus alone regardless if, of life and death. And in, and in Satan's ignorance, he thinks that he is accomplishing great things when the saints are martyred and killed. And yet all he what he does not realize is that their martyrdom strengthens the faith of other believers. That we are just bonded back together to say, we acknowledge the hatred, we acknowledge the violence and even the murder. And we are challenged to stand firm. Why? Because Jesus Christ... Our great Savior and Lord went to the cross, put on the humility, accepted the death, so that He could be the atoning sacrifice so that we might be transformed. So the way of the enemy is to hate you. Listen, the the greatest and most comforting thought that I have among people in my life that are unbelievers is this fact. When they are unbelievers, they are lost. They are going to act like unbelievers. They are going to live for themselves. They are going to love the cares of the world. They are not going to put you first. They are not going to put Christ first. They are putting themselves first. This is the sinfulness of all humanity when we begin to understand that, then their actions are not Christian actions, oftentimes not even moral actions. They are self-glorifying actions. May that be the fuel that leads us to proclaim the good news of the gospel to them, that even though they may hate us, we are called as the faithful to be different. Because while the way of the enemy is hatred, and the way of the enemy is violence, and the way of the enemy is even murder, the way of the faithful is to trust the justice of God and to be people of prayer. This is what Nehemiah does over and over again. Notice what he says in in chapter 4, starting in verse 4 and 5. As they're jeering and they're mocking uh, uh, Nehemiah and the people, Nehemiah goes to, to pray. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back your taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a, in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders." How did Nehemiah handle this conflict? Well, he didn't handle it with retribution. He trusted the faithfulness of God, who is the just God. Look again in chapter 6, verse 14, in a very similar response. He tells God or asks God, God, remember Tobiah and Sambalit. oh my God, according to these things that they did and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. He's putting his trust in God's justice, knowing that God will do what is necessary to bring his enemies and bring the judgments according to them and what they've, uh, what they've done against the enemies of God. God is the one to be trusted. He is a just judge. Why is, that, why is that important for us? Well, because when we put our faith in God's justice, then we don't have to go out and be our own avengers. We don't have to be the ones that are retaliating or responding in a way thinking that we're going to make things right. God makes things right through His Son Jesus. And Nehemiah gives us this faithful reminder that if we trust in God's justice as transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not retaliating, we're praying. We're not rising up in anger and viciousness. We are getting on our knees in prayer, trusting in God's justice, in His timing. And this is convicting for our culture today. Not to retaliate, even with our words. Listen, social media is a a barrage of retaliation back and forth. It's no longer about sharing ideas. It's literally throwing verbal jabs and, 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 and wordy jabs at each other. It's not doing the church any good to have these verbal arguments behind our screens, not really uh, engaging a person's personality or, or his uh, emotions not even be able to see his facial expressions or her facial expressions. Instead, church, when we are attacked, trust in the justice of God and pray for your enemies. Now, Nehemiah prayed, God, I put my trust in your justice. I put my trust in your judgments upon them. It's not, I'm not going to focus on that anymore. And so it leads us then, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to then instead act in love toward our enemies. Jesus tells us this. How do we respond to our enemies? Pray for them. We pray for our enemies. Those that are in need, we give them a cup of cold water. We we love them, even those that have hurt us and offended us. This is the message of Christmas, this is the message of the gospel. That you and I, the ones that had offended God and rebelled against Him, He instead overlooks that offense, sends His Son to die upon the cross. To fulfill the law in every way and be the atoning sacrifice so that we could be forgiven and that we could live in peace with God. So therefore, the ways of the faithful are a peaceful trust in God's justice and people who pray for our enemies. And finally, I'm going to stop here this, this, uh, this afternoon because I could go for another 45 minutes. We'll pick this up next week. But finally, remember That in Revelation, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ will return. And he comes in a different way than he came as that babe in a manger. In Revelation, he's not a child in humility, in poverty, in meekness, in obscurity. He comes in power. And the Bible tells us in Revelation that he comes as a warrior to wage war and judgment against those that have uh, 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 attacked his people and his church. And guess what? He is the victor. He not is only will be the victor, he is the victor because he gained that victory on the cross in his death and resurrection. And so as you go throughout this Christmas week, I pray that you would trust in Christ as a believer, as a follower of the Lord Jesus, that you would remember the spiritual battle that we are a part of, and that you would rest in the character of God as your source of strength, that you would remember the Lord as Nehemiah tells us, that you would remember Him As the great and awesome God. And that as transformed people of God, you would be different, showing your faithfulness to love and to care and to pray. And let me just invite you if you're a guest with us or you're online uh, tuned in, let me invite you to consider your life. And does it measure up with the ways of the enemy that has been described today? Are you full of anger and wrath and vengeance? As you approach the Christmas season, are you bearing the great load and burden of an unforgiving heart? Well, the Bible tells us that someone that that lives in such a way is not born again. Because the Spirit of God changes us. doesn't mean that you won't struggle with unforgiveness at times, that you won't deal with the, uh, and wrestle with uh, an, an uncaring word or action. But we're talking about the lifestyle and the burden of an unforgiving and uncaring heart. Are you a discouraging person? Are you constantly thinking about the things that you don't have? The things that you haven't accomplished? The life that someone else is living? And does that, does that manifest itself into uh, judgment of others and mocking and, and, and um, blaming other people? Making fun of them, bullying them, tearing, thing, tearing down the people that are around you? Again, a transformed heart is a heart of love and encouragement, not discouragement and jealousy and discontentment. So if that describes you today, let me just invite you to believe in Jesus. Let me ask you to consider what the scripture says that you are a slave to that sin. And the only way that a A person can escape such a slavery is not to liberate themselves, it's to trust in Jesus to liberate them. He's the only liberator, He's the only rescuer. And this Christmas season is not about a baby in a manger, it's about a baby in a manger that lived a perfect life because you and I can't live it. That He was God in the flesh. He came down into this world putting on human flesh, living a perfect life, dying upon the cross so that we could receive forgiveness. And so the invitation is that you would believe in Jesus because he defeated sin and death at the cross and in his resurrection because you can't defeat that. You'll never have victory over discouragement even though you can have a temporary moral change. You'll never have victory over anger and jealousy and unforgiveness, although you may go a day or two feeling better about yourself. But Jesus Christ can rescue you when you believe and trust in him. And so I pray you would do that. Father, I I thank you for this uh, season again that we come upon. You've given us another Christmas time with our families to think about your son, Father to think about the the rescue that He has provided, the victory that He has given in His uh, redemptive work upon the cross, His resurrection. And because of those things, Father, we celebrate today, this Lord's Day, all that He is and all that He has done. And Father, our greatest desire is that, one, we would live as people who have been transformed. That the Spirit would work in us in such a way that people would see that we are different in the way that we live. That we would have forgiveness and love and compassion for those around us. But secondly, our desire this afternoon is is simply to see those who have not experienced such hope and joy come to experience it today by trusting in Christ. And with that, God, we... We leave that in your hands. You tell us, Father, that you open the eyes of the blind. You allow the deaf to hear. You raise people from the dead. And we know that you have done that in many of our lives, and we pray that you would do that in the lives of others today who are lost and without Christ and awaiting his judgment. So, Father, we thank you for this time, the celebration of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.